I turned the button on. Sorry about that. Let me reboot. Good morning. All right. Thankful that you're here. Lots of places you could be. But the Lord has us all together for a reason this morning, I believe. If you're watching online uh, today or if you're watching online and it's Wednesday or Thursday, we're thankful that you're, that you're with us, that you're uh, joining us to, to, to worship the Lord. And we'll get into this in a second in, the, in, in our message. But if you noticed, the songs, the music so far today has really shined a light on who God is and his worthiness of our worship. You're going to see that permeate, uh, permeate our message today. And I just want us to just almost just bask in, in his glory and bask in his love. And James read out of Psalm 103 and one of the, song, one of the songs that we sang was all about Psalm 103. And there's a line in, in Psalm 103 that, that mentions the steadfast love of the Lord. And it's, it's, a, it's a curious phrase, steadfast love. And in Hebrew, that word is chesed. Say chesed. Yeah, see, you Gentiles can't say chesed. But that's, it's a curious word, I say, because there's not, a, there's not an English equivalent of it. It's usually just most of your translations may just say love. And, of course, it is love, but, it, but it's covenantal love. And it's this love and commitment that God has for us that, that disregards our unfaithfulness that disregards when we spit on him, he loves us anyway. That's the steadfast love of the Lord. And it is a model. You know, it's a model for us in the way that we should love each other, even when you don't feel like it, even when the other person is not being lovable. Maybe you're being unlovable. But it's the love that loves anyway. And that's the God that all of us are sitting in here worshiping today. And I just want you all to think about that as we, as we walk through this message. And today we are we're in, uh, again walking through Acts, the book of Acts. Two weeks ago we wrapped up chapter 13 as we're taking this journey through there. Chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, they were in Pisidian Antioch. And, and Paul and Barnabas, they had shared the gospel in the synagogue. And if you remember... Uh, in the synagogue, when they shared the gospel in Pisidian Antioch, some people uh, wanted more. They wanted to hear more. Some people actually gave their lives to Christ and were saved. And some people uh, rejected Paul and Barnabas's message. They rejected it. They even uh, brought massive opposition to the two of them. Ultimately, they drove Paul and Barnabas out of the area. And the two men, verse 51 in chapter 13, says that, the two of them shook the dust off their feet, off their sandals, and they, and they left and hit the road. But when they left, they left, if you remember, they left full of two things. They left full of joy, and they left full of the Holy Spirit, even though they had faced rejection, opposition, and kind of getting booted out, booted out of there. And so that brings us to the beginning of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas, they, they traveled southeast to the region of Galatia, and they made their first stop in the city, a Galatian city called Iconium. And they stuck to the Lord's plan in Iconium. They went first to the synagogue, because you remember the, the Lord told them, you go to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. And they went first to the synagogues at the beginning of chapter 14. And they preached the gospel, and the scripture says they, they preached the gospel with serious power. They saw a lot of folks in that church in, in Iconium 
excuse me, in that synagogue in Iconium, they saw a lot of folks give their lives to Christ. And Scripture tells us in verse 3 of Acts 14 that they stayed there for a long time. Now, we don't know really how long a long time is, but we know when they were there, they spoke boldly. And the Lord, we, we know that when they were there, the Lord granted them some miraculous uh, acts. But the people there were kind of freaked out by the success of their message. They were freaked out about the way the Lord was using Paul and Barnabas. And the Jews in Iconium immediately launched an attack against the messengers that brought that message. And the Jews there and some unbelieving Gentiles, they ignored the signs and the wonders and the miracles that were going on there. And those signs and wonders, they confirmed the message that, uh, that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. And those people rejected them, and they planned, the Scripture tells us that they planned to stone Paul and Barnabas. And the guys learned about that plan that to be stoned, and, 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 they, and they hit the road. And they took the message from there, from Iconium, to Lystra and Derby. Gets us to verse 8, which is really where we're going to kind of launch uh, here in a minute. We're going to dive in in verse 8 of chapter 14 in a minute. But I want to lay a little bit of a foundation and a little bit of the way reality is. And it was the reality then in the first century. It was the reality a thousand years ago, and it is the reality today. There are folks all over the world. There are folks all over the place. There are folks in your neighborhood. There are, there are folks in your workplace, there are folks in your school that know very, very little, if they know anything, they know very little about Scripture. They know very little about God. They know very little about the saving message of Christ. And y'all, these are people in very industrialized cultures and societies, and these are people in very primitive cultures and societies. This is, the, this is the lost of the world. People who are gripped with heathen and pagan and superstitious beliefs and deceptive philosophies. Anybody ever been to Haiti? Voodoo, witchcraft. Anybody ever been to New Orleans? Raise your hand, been to New Orleans. I remember the first time I went to New Orleans, my flesh started crawling as I crossed the line. It was evil. I'm not being all, ooh, but the, they don't know. They, they, there's a lot of voodoo stuff, witch doctor stuff. People are deceived. People, those, that, that, those people, they're walking through life without God, and therefore they're missing out on any hope for the future. It was that way in Lister and Derby, and it is that way in Columbus, Georgia, and it is that way all over the planet. And so I'm going to use some words today that may sound harsh, they may sound rough, like heathen or, or pagan or superstition or superstitious people, people that have been deceived by empty ways of thinking. Now, I want you to understand this, though. When I use those words, they're just descriptors for folks who are ignorant to the truth. Ignorant to the truth claims that are inside this book. Now, in no kind of way, shape, or form, am I equating that with inferiority or with that, that they are less valuable in the eyes of the Lord? Or am I, there's no way that I'm equating that with a lack of intelligence or intellect. Doesn't really have anything to do with that. They simply don't know. 
And they simply don't know because nobody's ever shared the gospel with them. I lived in Columbus, Georgia since the day I was born. Is Columbus, Georgia in the Bible Belt? Say, yes. Didn't nobody ever share the gospel with me first 37 years of my life? Matter of fact, nobody's ever shared the gospel with me. In the, they don't know. People don't know. It's not an IQ issue. It's, it's not, it has nothing to do with IQ or intellect. Well, that begs the question, how do these people get reached? How do we reach them? What's the message that needs to be preached to people who have, who have bought the deception? And we're really buying some sort of a deception. Well, what's the message that needs to be preached? Let's look at verses 8 through 13 first. I want to read these to you. Now, Lystra... Remember, they came down from Iconium to Lystra. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And they sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Starts off now at Lystra. Well, okay, Lystra. What, what was, where was Lystra? Lystra was a frontier town way less civilized than most of the places that Paul evangelized. It was 20-something miles south, uh, southwest of Iconium, and we don't really know necessarily when Lystra was founded, but a year or two before Jesus was born, Augustus planted a Roman colony in Lystra as a, as a frontier defense because Lystra was kind of on the frontier. And it was a city that was really built as a military outpost. At the end of the day, ultimately, Paul and Barnabas had a very successful ministry in this place called Lystra. They planted a solid church there that continued on. In fact, Paul visited Lystra on every one of his journeys. So it looks like Paul's, Paul's preaching in the streets here. Well, that kind of defies the Jew first Greek thing. Well, there wasn't a synagogue. Scripture doesn't mention that there is any, any synagogue in Lystra. We do know that there was some Jewish folks there, though, because pretty sure that Timothy... Timothy came either from Lystra or Derby, but we're pretty sure that Timothy's mom and grandmom were in Lystra. And if the Jews had been meeting together somewhere there, if there had been a synagogue, that's where Paul would have jumped in, right in the middle of it, and that's where his preaching ministry would have begun. But the evidence looks again like he's preaching in the streets, sharing the gospel with anybody that would listen to him. In these verses, we're gonna, and, and some verses uh, following, we're going to see the, the nature of pagan and superstitious beliefs and the nature of hollow and deceptive philosophies. And y'all are probably like, Where are those? where's that language coming from? That's not really the way I talk, but you're going to find out in a second about hollow and deceptive philosophies. Because later on, Paul warns us in Colossians chapter 2 in verse 8, which should be on the screen behind me. Yeah. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, if he says, this is a warning, if he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, that means that you and I can be taken captive as believers. 
says we can be taken captive by what? By hollow, he says hollow and deceptive philosophy, which means, excuse me, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Hollow and deceptive philosophies. As a believer, we can be, we are susceptible to being deceived. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that you can't buy a lie. One of the things that's going to permeate today's message is don't buy the lie. And there's a lot of them out there. And Paul warns us in various places in Scripture, but very black and white here in Colossians. So nonetheless, the nature of these folks that, that are in Lystra, it, it, it called for a, for a special message. What happens here in Lystra, it provides me and you for, for like a, a window into the nature or the very way that superstitious people Maybe just unbelievers that have bought a lie. It provides us a window into the way that they think and, and, and feel and view life. Because most of them know nothing about this book, which means they're not viewing life through a, through a biblical set of lenses. If people who have bought into what Paul calls hollow and deceptive philosophies, they look at things differently. They see things differently. And we can see this here in Acts chapter 14. Go back and we look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Again, they're ignorant to the truth. So number one, and this is going to be weird, because they've never, gospel's never been shared with them. Gospel had never been shared with me. You would think that I was a hater and was not open to the truth, but the reality is these people tend to be open to the truth. They just never heard it. Because nobody's ever shared it with them. So number one, these people tend to be open to faith in Christ. Because whatever they're filling the void in their life with, because you do know whether you're saved or lost or, or, or whatever you are, there is a void there that needs to be filled with something. And all of us try to fill it with all kind of stuff. Now, some of us are hard-headed, and it takes years and years and years of trying a bunch of different stuff trying to fill that void until we come to understand that the Lord is the only thing, the only being, the only, the only person that can fill that void. So they're, well, they know and they're realizing that whatever they're filling it with, it ain't working. And we can see this in this image of this man in the streets who had been lame and he'd been crippled since birth. And it looks like he was one of the few who took the time to listen to Paul. At least at first he was one of few that took the time to listen to Paul. Verse 10, it says that Paul shouted. Shouted, which apparently was to attract an audience. This man was utterly helpless. He had never walked, but this man listened to Paul. He listened to the gospel. He heard the gospel. He heard Paul speak. And because he heard the gospel, his heart was opened to the message of Christ. And if your heart is open to the message of Christ and you hear the message of Christ, you hear God's word, then you will be affected. So this man was affected by the words. He sensed that the message was heaven sent. He sensed that the message came from heaven. And therefore, he was affected by the gospel. He experienced the, the stirring up of faith and trust and belief in Christ. 
Verse 9 says that he had the faith to be made well. Other translations say, yours may say made whole. Well, to be made well or to, to be made whole means that he was both cured and saved. Means that he was cured of his physical infirmity and he was saved from his spiritual infirmity. And Paul, of course, is preaching the gospel. Paul's preaching a dead guy came alive out of a grave. Paul is preaching the resurrection. And the man's heart was stirred up to believe and to trust Jesus to save him. And, you know, Paul noticed the, the fervor of his faith. And all this man needed was to be pointed in the right direction. Somebody needed to point him in the right direction. And Paul shouted, stand upright on your feet. And the man jumped up and he walks. It's super interesting that Paul didn't reach out to the man and that Paul didn't touch the man and Paul didn't pop him on the forehead and say, be healed. He didn't do any of that. He didn't touch him. Paul spoke God's word to this man. The power was of Christ. The power was not of Paul. The power was of Christ, and the faith was within this man. The guy had to exercise his faith. You and I got to exercise our faith. So this guy, he exercised his faith, and, and he believed in, and he really trusted in the Lord Jesus to be healed physically and to be saved. My point is this. Unbelievers, superstitious people, pagans, they can and they are to be reached for Christ. Their hearts are just like our hearts. They're just as much in need. The void is in us unless it's been filled by Christ. The void is the same. Then and, and, and I would say to you today that they are just as open and subject to the truth. I said this a few minutes ago. I'll say this again. Some folks are just ignorant of God's word. They're ignorant of the, of the truth claims that scripture makes. They just don't know. And I would say they are open, way more open to truth than you would imagine. Let's take a look at, at verse, uh, uh, verse 11 and 12. Give you another little truth. Number two, people... These folks in particular are prone to deify men, to deify men. Practically everybody within earshot of Paul and Barnabas, they came running to see what all this commotion was about, what all the fuss was about, because this scene took place in a pretty busy street, pretty busy, pretty, pretty busy area of the city. The picture is this large crowd running together, and they're stunned, and they're shocked, and they're excited. They start running all over the place, screaming about, the gods are here, the gods are here. The gods have come to visit in the form of men. All that excitement, the whole city heard about the miracle. They jumped on the bandwagon to, quote, make gods out of these two, quote, miracle workers. The point is this. There is a tendency, you see it in Acts 14, and we see it all the time that there is a tendency in the world to deify both mankind in general and individual people, certain individual people, to hold this false view of humanism is to, to deify mankind in general. 
And what I mean by deify is to worship, put up on a pedestal, worship the ability and the accomplishments of men, whether it's in science and technology or magic or sorcery or whatever. There is a real tendency to worship and believe that man is in control, that man determines man's destiny and and man determines his own fate. And then there's a tendency to deify certain individual people, put them up on a pedestal, put them up on a throne, put them in places of honor because of their, uh, their apparent power or achievements or knowledge or fame or, or abilities. We do it all the time. And guys, it is wrong. It's wrong. No man, no woman ever needs to be put up on a pedestal Pragmatically, every one of us will let each other down. We're, we're human beings. We're sinful and broken, and we'll let you down. And at the end of the day, both of those things are idolatry. Bottom line is you put a man or a woman up on a pedestal, and you may not be bowing down in worship, but you're worshiping them, and it is idolatry. Number two. Number three is this. These superstitious people, Pagans, heathens, and I would say this, people today as well, believe myths, buy into myths. The people of Lystra, they identified Paul and Hermes, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas with these two, these two fake man-made gods of the pantheon, Zeus and Hermes. And let me tell you, this myth, widely held myth in that day, this is kind of the way it ran, that a long, long time ago, in a place far, far away. <laughs> Sorry about that. These two gods disguised themselves as men and they came to earth. And they were looking for people to welcome them and, and to entertain them and to please them. And their search was fruitless and their search was futile and everybody uh, rejected them except for two peasants. And I think their names were Philemon and Bossus, his wife, name was Bossus. Well, disappointed and angry and mad, the two gods destroyed every human on the planet except those two. They rewarded and they honored, and in our churchy language, we would say they blessed Philemon and his wife. Well, just look at how fast the people, how quick the folks in Lystra associated those two gods with Paul and Barnabas. They believed that, that Zeus and Hermes had visited the earth in the region of Lystra. And when they saw this really phenomenal miracle, this guy that all of them knew had never walked, when they saw him healed by the shouting words of Paul, well, that stirred up the imagination of the Lystrians. And in just that fast, they associated those two preachers with Zeus and Hermes. And in their deceived minds, the Lystrians were not about to, to make the same mistake that their ancestors made a long, long time ago because they wanted the blessings and the favor of the gods, not their judgment and their condemnation and their being wiped out. So they called Barnabas Zeus, who was the king of the gods, and they called Paul Hermes, who was the god of speech, and the messenger of the other gods. Just look at how they buy into, 
these crazy myths. They, they held on to false ideas about reality, false ideas about truth, false ideas about the origin of the world, false ideas about the nature and the presence of God. They mistook man's ability for God's ability and power. Super quick to start worshiping and, and, and idolizing and lifting up men and men's, quote, achievements. Again, they, they were deceived about a lot of stuff, and it all really starts with the origin of the world. Remember I said, I said a minute ago, notice how the pagans believed in myths. And yeah, I was talking about the people in Lystra. But don't for a second, y'all, think that we're way smarter and we're way more intelligent than they were and we're way, way more enlightened than they were, as if we can't be deceived and buy a lie. Colossians 2.8 says we sure can be deceived and buy a lie. This narrative in Acts took place 2,000-ish years ago. It's a long time. And we sure have a tendency to believe that we are way smarter than those people. Our IQs are way higher than those people. Well, 163 years ago, in 1859, which ain't that long ago, Charles Darwin published a book. The full title of that book was On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of the Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. It was 1859. In 2015, which is seven years ago, that book was voted the most influential academic book in history. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that vote, but the influence was cataclysmically bad. It was hollow, and it's deceptive, like Paul wrote in Colossians. And then Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. And he takes it to another level. Because I said, we're just, we can be ignorant, people can be ignorant of the truth. Because they just never heard the gospel. And that's true. But Paul ramps that up a little bit in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, write it down. We see that the, the unrighteous, the lost, or the heathen, or the pagan, or the deceived. Paul says, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Because he says, what you and I can know about God is obvious. It's obvious. His nature, his attributes, just who he is, Paul says here, is pretty clear. And it has been since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been created. It is insane to me how someone could watch the birth of a baby and conclude that there is no God. We suppress that. Paul writes that the unrighteous that he's talking about in Romans 1 are without excuse. He says so they know. On some level he says they know. But that they became futile in their thoughts and that their hearts were darkened. They claim to be wise, but he said they're really fools. You hear that all the time. People that claim to be wise and they're spewing out lies, they're really a fool. He says that they trade 
the glory of God, the one who holds everything in his hands. They trade the glory of God for cheap figurines that you can buy at Zelmo's across the street and worship that. So verse 24, the Lord says, if that's what you want, you can have it. If that's what you want, you can have it. You want to live in a pig pen like a pig? You can live in a pig pen like a pig. Why? Why? The pinnacle of this passage in Romans 1 is verse 25. He says it's because you exchanged the truths of God for a lie. He says you, you've been deceived. You bartered away the truth for an untruth. And you worshiped and you served the creature instead of the creator. Y'all, that is the insidious nature of evolution. And you can go back on a timeline and draw a line at 1859. Everything was different after 1859. You are asked to believe that nobody plus nothing equals everything. I'm just like, that's nonsense. That nobody plus nothing equals everything. Well, if, look, if you walk in the woods and you stumble upon a little soccer ball, you would make an assumption that somebody made that soccer ball and somebody had been there and they left that soccer ball there. You would make that be a logical, rational assumption. Because, y'all, I'm not asking you to check your brain at the door. A logical, rational assumption in the middle of the woods and you find a soccer ball, somebody made it and put it there. If you stumbled upon a large ball like the size of your SUV out there in the parking lot, you would assume that somebody pretty big kind of left it there. If you, if you stumbled upon one that was the size of the planet that all of us live on, then somebody really, really big and really powerful and really awesome and really creative left it there. If you stumbled upon a watch, if you've ever heard the watchmaker, if you stumbled upon a watch in the middle of the woods on the ground, you would not make an assumption that randomly a thousand pieces of metal and springs and glass just fell out of the sky and formed a watch that worked. No, the watch requires a watchmaker. In the beginning, God created first words of the book. In the beginning, God created. That makes a whole lot more sense and is a whole lot more supported by the evidence in the real world than that we came from a mud puddle and that a cat is a horse, is a dog, is a monkey, is a boy. That doesn't make any sense to a logical. So I'm not telling you to have blind faith. I'm not saying don't investigate the truth claims Scripture makes. Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Don't buy the myth. Don't just blindly buy it. Investigate it all you want. Dude, this book has been tried to be disproven for thousands of years. Press on it. Question it. Don't not question it. If it's true, it'll stand up to any pressure anyone could ever put on it. I know for me, in my brain, in my journey, I press the tar out of it. And it comes away truth. So don't buy a lie. Look at verse 13 of Acts 14. Number four, superstitious people 
offer the wrong sacrifice. So these people in Lystra, they're crazy excited. They ran like mad to pay honor, to lift up these two, quote, God men. They were ready and they were prepared even to make sacrifices to them. Verse 13 tells us they brought oxen and garlands to the gates to offer sacrifices. Now, just as, as an aside, you may wonder what the, what the garlands were. And I'm so dumb this week. I'm like, what is a garland? I don't know what a garland is. Well, a garland, and all you people are like, how do you not know what a garland is? But a garland's like a wreath, right? Well, in their pagan sacrificial system, they adorned the animal that was being sacrificed with a garland in, before, they, before they killed it. So why these people want to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas? And the reason is because they wanted Paul and Barnabas to favor them and to bless them. This idea of sacrifice or giving oneself in order to secure favor and blessing, it is inherent in, in, in more than just religion, let's say religious circles. It kind of holds true in everything that we do. A person has to sacrifice and give himself or herself to any work if he wants to reap the benefits of the work. Whatever the project is, our being, our time, our brain space, our energy, our effort are required if we want to have blessings from the work. The unbelieving of the world sacrifice and give themselves to men and women of power and ability and wealth and achievement. Well, why do they do that? Because they tend to treat these people like gods. And they do it to secure the favor and the blessings of those people's power and wealth and ability and achievement. They want the humans, they want a, them to bless them. Humanists, people who think that nature is all there is and that nature created itself, they sacrifice, tend to sacrifice and give themselves to men of science. Men of science, they're so smart. The reality and the truth is that there's only two kinds of genuine, sure enough, sacrifice. First is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us, the giving of his life in order to save mankind. And second is our sacrifice to Christ, the surrendering, and this is the hardest thing, y'all, it just is, the surrendering and the submitting of my entire life to him. Me putting everything that is in into the hands of the Savior. Total submission and total surrender to his will. And throughout the pages of Scripture, he models that. So, these crazy people come running and they're trying to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. How did the missionaries respond to all that carrying on and the crazy Zeus worshiping stuff? Well, they ran out in the middle of them and they tore their clothes. And you may wonder, what is all that about? What is all that clothes tearing stuff? Well, back in that day, the tearing of, of your own clothes, it was a sign, and this is going to sound so churchy, it was a sign of holy indignation. It was a sign of righteous anger. It was a sign of like, like godly outrage. You know, when I told my parents I got saved 21 years ago, my mom tore sleeve. 
because she was ticked. It's godly outrage. And that's what they did. But then Paul, Paul cries out with exactly what these people needed to hear. Look at verse 15. At least start in verse 15. Don't forget again, now these people were ignorant of the Scriptures. Didn't know nothing about no Scripture. Didn't know nothing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, so Paul has to approach them on the basis of a living God who made heaven and earth and the seas and everything else. And Paul gives them five things. He says, look, men are men. Men are men. Our nature is just like your nature. He says, we're, we're just guys. Same heart, same feelings, same temptations, same suffering. We suffer just like you do. We're going to get old and we're going to die just like you are. Paul was super self-aware. Paul knew exactly who he was. And he knew he was not a God-man. He also knew that he had been entrusted with the gospel and that he was a messenger for Christ and preached to men and women. He was an evangelist who declared the truth about God. He declared the truth that men and women ought to repent and turn away from all that crazy stuff in context, all that crazy Zeus, Hermes stuff, turn away from the empty things, turn away from the idols, and turn towards the Lord. Number one. Number two, he makes a claim that there is only one living God. These folks are worshiping one of two things or one and two things. Man-made idols, which were lifeless and helpless in saving from sin, death, and judgment. Or they're worshiping man himself, who is always aging and always suffering and always dying and totally un unable to save himself. There is only one living God. Only one God who possesses the energy of life, the power of life the force of life, the, and, and who is the source of life. So clearly the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God to be worshipped. The only one to be worshipped. In our day, not Buddha, not Oprah, not anybody, but Yahweh. The only one, not one of many, the only one. And then he talks about this God, that, that this living God, that he is the creator of all things, heaven, earth, everything. He's the creator of man, everything about man. He breathed the very life into men and women. So therefore, the God of creation is the only God who is to be worshipped. Nehemiah, this is not going to be on your screen, Nehemiah. Back on the left side of your Bible, chapter 9, verse 6. Nehemiah, he's, he's talking to the Lord, and he says, You are the Lord. You alone, Nehemiah says, you are the Lord. He says, you alone made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host and the earth and all that is in the earth, the seas and everything that is in the seas. You alone made that, and you alone preserve all of that, and the host of heaven worships you. 
So he says, if you are the one that created all this stuff, the only logical response that all of us can have is to worship the creator. Number three. Number four is this. He allows them and he allows us to walk our own paths. It's verse 16. He's explaining why people worship idols and the empty things of the earth of the, of the earth and the world. And it's, it happens because people have free will. You have free will. You have choosers. You can do anything that you want to do. You can wake up tomorrow morning, do whatever you want to do. You can behave however you want to behave. You can. I can't twist your arm behind your back. You want to hate? Hate. You can hate. You want to be racist? Be racist. You can, you gotta, you can choose what you're going to do. You want to be ugly to your neighbor? You can do it. But God suffers through all of that because he really, really, really wants me and you to turn from that and turn to him. He wants us to return to him, turn and return. And the thing about one of our battle cries at Church on the Trail is helping people find their way back to God and grow. That includes people who are already saved and maybe kind of wandered away somewhere. It includes people that have never made a profession of faith and are not saved. Our goal, y'all, as Christ followers is to, to help people to 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 lessen God's long-sufferingness, to help people get back. Number four. Number five is this, verse 17. Paul says that God has never left himself without a witness. No man has ever been left without a witness. He says that because he's taken it all back to the beginning. Paul says that there's evidence of his goodness in the world, of rain, of fruitful seasons, of food, and of gladness. There's evidence out there in creation. Nature. The laws of nature didn't just happen randomly. They're given and they're controlled by the only true and living God. He is behind everything that is good. He is the source of everything that is good in your life. And the Bible teaches us that that all of us have at least two witnesses. Maybe three, I may give you a third one, but at least two witnesses of the Lord. The first is this outward witness that we would call natural revelation. Natural revelation. Walk outside and look at the order in the universe. It didn't just happen. The bee pollinating stuff. I'm not a scientist. Nature screams of a loving creator. And so Paul takes it back to the beginning with these Lystrians. He stresses that, the creation. And then the inner witness that's inside of us, in our conscience and in our thoughts. Romans, again, Paul writes Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 are on the screen. I want to paraphrase this. Because this is a little bit of a difficult couple of verses. But what Paul is saying is when the Gentiles who've never heard of God, never heard of God's laws, when they kind of follow it anyway, it validates truth. 
He says they prove that God's law is not something foreign, not something forced on them or on us from the outside. He says, no, 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 no. It's woven into the very fabric of our being. He says that there's something deep inside of all of us that resonates God's yes and no and right and wrong. It's the things that are always right or always wrong across all culture and across all time. Moral absolutes is what we would call that. The unjust taking of a human life. I don't care when or where you lived. You know it's wrong. Somewhere inside of it. You may have never even heard of this. But you know because God planted that inside of you. That that is wrong. So there's at least those two witnesses. As a little bit of an aside, I would say, this is a witness that we have in 2022. So we have no excuse either. We've got his word printed. 7,500 different translations. We have it available to us on our phone, on our, on our desktop, on our laptop, audible, in print. We, we got that. We call it special revelation. Look at the last two verses. Verse 19, the evangelist, the preacher, That guy is used, and I'm going to loosely use the word need, but God needs and uses the body of Christ to reach people for Christ. He chose to use people and their giftedness and exploit their giftedness to reach people for Christ. And the preacher of the gospel, which if you're saved, you should be a preacher of the gospel. Has got to be willing to sacrifice and willing to suffer. Persecution, maybe even death for the sake of Christ, for the cause of Christ. Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium were two places, and they hadn't been many places yet in this first journey, and so two of them already were places that had threatened and booted out Paul and Barnabas. So there were some Jews from there that were so fired up about what was going on, so fired up about the ministry that was taking place, so fired up about the message that these two were preaching, that they got the people there riled up and fired up and stoned Paul, which is a pretty horrific thing if you know how that took place. They bury him down to their waist and pummel him with rocks. That's, that's being stoned. Pretty much thought Paul's dead, just drug him out outside the city gates. Being willing to die for Christ. Being willing to sacrifice stuff all the way up to, to your life for the cause of Christ. What a thought. To sacrifice. What's the nature of that word sacrifice? I give up something I love for something I love more. Look, I remember my dad the day I got married 
and he said, you'll never know a love until you have children like the love that you have for your wife. And he said, I used to tell you, son, that I would jump in front of a train for your mother, and now you understand that because I love her more than I love myself. Now, as should be the case, I love you, baby. I love Christ more. So, sacrifice for the cause. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Right before that passage in Romans 1, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because he says, it is the power of salvation. I'm not ashamed of it, he says. I'm willing to jump in front of the train for the, for the cause of Christ. Y'all, you see a picture behind me. That is the original Papa Ed on the left. Ed Heinsohn. Talked about him last week. Christy Murphy's dad, Jeff Murphy's father-in-law, who was our founding pastor. It's Papa Ed. He's the original Papa Ed. The one on the right is a wannabe. A poser. Papa Ed. Well, I told you a little bit about Papa Ed last Sunday. Papa Ed gave his life to Christ in 1950. And then he lived the next 70 years like he'd given his life to Christ in 1950. The next 70 years of his life. That guy, he was eight years old when he gave his life to Christ in 1950. The last three hours of his life, he died at about 10 after 12 Saturday morning. The last three hours of his life in the hospital, I don't, do you know how many were around the bed? 15, 20 people around the bed in the hospital for three hours singing hymns. Three hours. Christy said it was like our family was ushering him into the presence of his Savior. Three hours. Christy asked him around the three-hour mark because she saw either she or her sister saw his breathing slowing down, really slowing down. And she said that he, he, had his, he was holding his hands up and he was looking up. And she said, I never saw that man hold his hands up. He was not like, like we are in a, in a song. He was, that was not him. But she said he was holding his hands up. And she said, Daddy, this is right at around the three-hour mark. Daddy, if you could tell us one thing, if you could give us one word. She said, what, what, would, she said, what would it be? And he said, be willing to sacrifice your life for the cause of Christ. And then he died. Think about it. Ask this beautiful godly man those were his last words be willing to sacrifice your life for the cause of Christ be willing to sacrifice those words were an image of the way that joker lived his life for 70 years are you willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ not for church on the trail not for sound choices crisis pregnancy center not for M2540 our homeless ministry not, not for for Freedom House, not for Valley Rescue Mission, and all those things are awesome things. But are you willing to sacrifice for Christ? You don't want to leave you with a couple of things. I think the biggest takeaway today, and it permeates this last thing about sacrifice, and it permeates the music that we 
heard and worshiped to this morning that permeates this whole passage is the only one that deserves our worship and our praise and our honor and our glory is the one true living God. Muhammad rotted in a grave. Buddha, I don't know. I'm assuming that Buddha was a real person at some time. Anybody know? If he was, he's dead and rotten in the grave. David, who the Jews kind of held up on a pedestal. One of the first things Peter says at Pentecost, David's rotten in the grave. Y'all, I don't care the leader of whatever. They're all dead and rotten in the grave. Our guy walked out alive. He's the only one. The only one. He's the only one that deserves all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. Period. I want to tee up this last song that we're going to sing there's a line in it that says if you gave your life to love them so will I what a beautiful model that he gave us on the cross so will I y'all contrary to what the what the world beats you with pluralism bunch of different ways if heaven exists there's a bunch of different ways to get there no there's not no there's not it's an exclusive club it's an exclusive club that everybody can get into you've got to say yes and you've got to trust and you've got to believe and you've got to turn away from the sin as Paul tells them the Lystrians that turn away and turn towards the only one true and living God who created everything one way I don't care about the snake oil salesmen that get on TV and try to dance around words so they don't have to say there's only one way there's one way and that's it and he died on a cross and James talked about in our, in our, in our band played the song a little while ago about the sin being put as far as the east is from the west That is God's word saying it is done away with. It is done away with. What a beautiful image. The blood that was spilled all over that cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, it does away with your sin. But you got to know the one that died. And I don't mean you got to have knowledge of him. I mean you got to know him. You gotta believe in him. You gotta trust him. You gotta submit your life to his will that he knows better than me and you do. That's where people struggle, is in that submission and surrender to him. I want you to know him that way. Repent, turn away and believe. Repent, turn away, turn towards him confess that belief know that know and believe that he walked out of the grave makes eternal life available to you and I cry out for him to save you and he will I promise you he's never said no and he won't say no y'all pray with me Lord we love you today and Lord if there are people within earshot of this that want to be saved today that want to turn away from their sin Lord, let them just say this, these words out loud or to themselves. 
Today's the day that I turn away from whatever it is. I turn away from my sin. I repent of my sin. I turn away and I turn towards you, Lord. Because you are the only one. And Lord, I believe you died on the cross and it made eternal life with you available to me. Lord, save me right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if that's you, please let us know that happened. Fill out one of those little connection cards. That, and it'll, there's a little box. Not that we're box checkers around here. But there's a little box that says, Today I made Jesus my leader and forgiver. We want to know. Because we want to come alongside of you and pray with you and walk that journey with you. Our prayer team folks are back there in the back. Would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Please just let us know.